welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. to another episode. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Charles Willekes from Grand Rapids, Michigan, from the Cornwell Health Group, formerly known as Spectrum. And he recently presented some really compelling data at the AATS STARS meeting this past December 2022 in Boston, where he conducted an FDA IDE feasibility trial of bilateral pulmonary vein isolation prophylactically to prevent the incidence of postoperative atrial fibrillation. So we get into his study, we get into kind of the trials and tribulations of working with the FDA, and then we also discuss the recent study that we presented, us here at St. Helena at the STS meeting recently in San Diego, where we retrospectively reviewed the effectiveness of the encompass clamp to create a posterior wall isolation again to prevent postoperative atrial fibrillation. So I had a great time doing this episode. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks again for listening. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. Today I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Charles Willekes from Michigan. And I'm going to let him kind of introduce himself and tell us kind of what he's been up to. Dr. Willekes, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Yeah, thank you. You're very excited to, to uh, delve into this podcast with, with um, after recently discovering it, it just, yeah, it's amazing. This is something I, I think all cardiac surgeons need to start to find out about but uh, you know my background is is fairly straightforward i um completed my fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery in 1998 and have done general cardiothoracic surgery uh for many years in a private practice group an exceedingly busy private practice group and it what led to my interest in atrial fibrillation is we were just not doing a good job tracking patients or seeing what our outcomes were and the more i started to research this i said there's something wrong with everything we're doing to treat atrial fibrillation and uh, this is kind of spawned the idea of, of preventing before we had to treat. So I uh, started doing some basic EP research, and that's what kind of spawned the whole idea. 
Interesting. So let's, before we jump into kind of the, the study, tell us a little bit more about what your practice was like with respect to AFib in 1998 up until, if you will, kind of take us through that timeline up until before you did the study. So how much AFib were you treating? What were you treating it with? Can you kind of help the listeners get a context for, for uh, your practice over time? That's a great question because um, it's such an evolution. So when I finished fellowship in, in the late 90s, we didn't really care a lot about atrial fibrillation. And it wasn't until, I, I would say this was an industry um, initiative. I'm going to say that above and beyond what what the surgeons were thinking, because we weren't taught to treat atrial fibrillation at all. And it, when industry came along with newer technology, instead of having to do the traditional cut and sew, which was the only thing available back then, it really started to take off. And I can tell you, we did such a sloppy job. We would embrace the technology and we had really no concept of what we were doing. And I was in an extremely busy private practice group doing, oh, do you just, you, you can imagine you doing 600 cabbages a year and most of the patients coming in with some history of atrial fibrillation. And we tried everything from the earliest monopolar probes to the, uh, ultrasound technology with some, I, I forget, St. Jude had, a, I think, a snake. And we tried a lot of different things. And wow. it's, it's, become, it's become apparent we had a big deficit in our knowledge of, of atrial fibrillation. We just didn't understand it. We thought, just treat it with digoxin. And we didn't have even amiodarone back then. Um, so, and the more I think that we are understanding as a society and medicine as a whole, that, that it's so detrimental to, to patient longevity and, uh, morbidity that that's, that's kind of how we grew. We literally grew into this. Interesting. Yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting to think about, you know, when Cox introduced the Cox maze in 87, and then it really didn't, my understanding come into practice, the cut. And so, you know, beyond Dr. Cox, Dr. McCarthy, you know, there were probably only a handful of people into the early nineties that were actually doing the cut. And so, and that's a really interesting perspective to think about how it went from a very complex procedure to maybe something that was a little more attainable as kind of technology came into place with the RF clamps and ultimately the cryoprobe. So that, that takes us kind of through the 90s. So what, what was it like, if you will, the past decade, maybe, or two decades into the 2000s? What was that like? Well, I would say the first thing was our understanding. For surgeons, the understanding became better and greater, it, it, it was really every meeting you started to go to more and more would be introduced into the general cardiac sessions. 
And and now it's I'm jumping ahead a little bit on your question, but now it's become an entity alone for surgeons. It's it's as you as you get into more of this well, the standalone AFib and that was so feared for anybody to do because it was cut and sew. And now we kind of went through the uh, bilateral pulmonary vein isolation and that appendage clipping into this, to the robotic and the minimally invasive. It, it's really had a dramatic, I would say, uh, impact on, on the newer trainees and, and how we think about AFib. Interesting. But you're you're pretty unique though, I would have to say. I mean, even if 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 we were to think about the data that was just presented at the STS. So Dr. Karen Kim and Dr. Mike Badish and the whole database kind of group presented the most recent data out of our STS. And it still states that only about 35% of people who go to the operating room with the history of atrial fibrillation get some sort of ablation. I mean, we're not even talking bitrial cox maze. We're just talking about they put something on the heart that they called an ablation. So I say that because you're still pretty darn unique. I mean, not, not only are, are you ablating, but you took it a step far further. You said, not only am I going to ablate to treat AFib, but you're going to ablate to prevent AFib. That's a wild consideration. And tell us more about that. Like, how did, how did you make that leap of faith? Were there clinical signs? Was it a hunch? Was it kind of walk us through that, through those, uh, through that process? Well, I, I just, I, I, so a little bit of my niche is, is, is minimally invasive valvular surgery. So it, it just seemed to that we were seeing a cadre of patients that were, had chronic AFib and they would present with myocardial structural changes leading to their valvular abnormalities. And it seemed that more and more atrial fibrillation was being ignored. And it became such a, um, I guess I kind of started to really delve into it. And, and what are we doing to help these patients? So then I swayed over to what was going on in the world to prevent post-op AFib. So I'm getting down two topics at the same time, but it it, it became apparent that a lot of patients are suffering. And then when you carry it over to see how they were, you know, how we we're dealing with post-op AF, it just, the mindset went over to that, that population because we deal with it on a daily basis. And in private practice, you were the rounder every day. And on a busy surgical service, you know, you're rounding on, you know, 80, 90 patients with two advanced practice professionals, and you suddenly see that atrial fibrillation is, even post-op is a, is a problem. Absolutely. It, you know, it, I do find it a little bit funny that we're, we both kind of walk in the same shoes, meaning we're both private practice surgeons. 
we both were dealing with the burden, if you will, of post-op AFib, right? Like it wasn't the resident or the fellow that was getting the call on post-op day two about AFib. It was you or I. Right. It was, it was you or me getting the phone call <laughs> and we've all been through that. We've been through it as trainees and now we're going through it as busy attendings. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. We, we felt that same clinical presence and kind of burden of post-op AFib. And we, we were able to kind of cheat off what we were hearing about you and your study and your group study. So we, we delved into this prophylactic part too, but it is interesting that we're both, we kind of both felt that impact of post-op AFib. So let's go back to your study. So talk to me about, and let the listeners know about when you got to the point where you kind of crossed the threshold and you said, you know what, I really want to study this. I really want to do an FDA trial to see if what my sense is that we can prevent this is actual reality. Yeah, so th- that became the, the the bigger the so when I thought about this, we're going back now to about 2015 because I started researching a little bit and yeah, you know, I took it from a simplistic surgeon's point of view. And at that time, 90% of the drivers from for early onset AFib were from the pulmonary veins. And, and everybody said that it, it was Hasegura's original studies. And no matter you went to Braunwald or the EP textbooks, this is what they said. And I thought, why can't we knock these out with this new technology that we have and prevent atrial fibrillation? And there was a very early Russian study by Lednev. And actually, one of his co-workers, I, I actually talked to him in Moscow many years ago already now. It's because, well, I should many years is five or six years in order to see what he was doing. And he believed in this approach that knocking out the pulmonary vein triggers would work. And I said, look, I'm going to try the same thing. And that's when the whole voyage started. And um, it, uh, yeah, I went from the IRB and they denied me to the ability to use the technology. They said, you have to get that cleared through the FDA. So that process started back in 2016 going back and forth to get an investigational device exemption. Wow. And wow. So you've, you've, you've been at this for a while. So talk us through kind of that process. So how do you, how did you navigate the whole FDA IDE kind of, uh, experience? <laughs> yeah, that, that was a long process. It was m- multiple, um, multiple meetings with the FDA back and forth. I had a, an exceptional research nurse who never lost faith in the whole idea because of many times I got discouraged, but it, we finally, we got FDA approval in about 2018. And then the problem became, um, the hospital was worried how we would bill for these patients, especially if something bad happened. Because one of the 
One of the biggest concerns with the FDA was safety. And yet I knew that the world had just, you know, even the, our society, the SDS had said, this is a safe procedure. That was already back in 2017, but um, that was, uh, so even though the FDA cleared it, then I got the IRB to clear it one more time. And then I had to get it through CMS. Wow. So, so tell us about that. Cause that's, that's definitely a question I was asked on the podium too, with, with respect to cost of a prophylactic ablation. So what, what, what kind of came of that, that CMS conversation? Well, we, we, uh, ultimately to keep it short, we ended up categorizing the, the study as a category A. And, and there's some nuances with that. And part of it was that the, they'd still pay for the procedure under this research designation. And I still don't understand it today. And okay. forgive me, that's a government thing again that um, just it goes over my head how they try to reclassify things. But ultimately, it took, it sounds like almost two, maybe three years to go from conception, at least ideologically, all the way to getting maybe your first patient enrolled. Is that fair? Yes, that is fair, because we enrolled the first patient in February of 2020, and that was a solid three years later. Wow. Now, you must have been very comfortable with... PVI or you know bilateral pulmonary vein isolation using the clamp in the treatment stage or phase, if you will, before you even considered applying it to patients who didn't have atrial fibrillation. Can you kind of talk us about tell talk to us about you know so many surgeons that we see nowadays proctoring and speaking to? I feel like uh, there was a gap in training, right? And it's kind of it it. It makes sense based on everything you just told us, you know, so maybe in the 90s, early 2000s, there just wasn't the knowledge about not only conceptually, how does the maze work or functionally, how do you create the lesions? But how did you specifically go about learning how to do the maze and get to the point where you were really comfortable doing bilateral PVI? So. Again, a very good question because the, that's the surgeons of my decade. It, you have to take it upon yourself um, to, to go to the meetings. I think that's when we start hearing the, the giants, you know, Dr. Cox um, and a lot of people from that little bit later talking about all the new technologies we went to symposiums on this we did self-training we went to the bigger companies um atricure uh medtronic we learned how to use their devices and we participated in some of their trials we, we participated in the the ablate trial and and um some of medtronic's early trials as well but we, we just got involved with it because it, it was it, it the technology was there and we had the knowledge already that this is bad and we're not helping our patients with gotcha. AFib. So it's all self-taught, I guess. It's yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting. You know, it's, uh, 
I think it's good for any of the listeners who are currently in training or, you know, who, uh, perspective cardiac thoracic surgeons, you know, it's, uh, I think you nailed it. There's a lot of learning on the job. There's a lot of kind of self-motivation. A lot of what we learn in training isn't ultimately what we're going to be doing as attendings. We can all speak to that. And, and that just echoed that, that thought process again. So thank you for mentioning that. So let's, um, let's fast forward now it's 2020 you're about to enroll your first patient, but you had some limitations on, on the cohort that you specifically wanted to examine. So can you talk to us about what sort of uh, inclusion, exclusion criteria, who you thought would benefit most from, from a prophylactic pulmonary vein isolation? Yes. That, so we chose a high-risk population, and that's patients over age 70. And We've documented from our own institutions in the you know, in the two years previously in our in the STS database, we we looked and over age seventy the the, the risk just after an isolated AVR is about forty seven percent and for an isolated cabbage in that population is about forty percent and that was you know over twenty more. 24 month period, we had about 550 patients with a little over 200 with new onset AFib after just isolated cabbage. So we chose age as that is the most consistent risk factor in the literature. And we eliminated reoperations, we eliminated mitral valve disease because the, the mitral valve causes its own. Uh, pathology to the left atrium, and any patient with left atrial enlargement, we eliminate it because why is there left atrial, the left atrium enlarging? Is it diastolic dysfunction? We, we, we don't know, but if you already have an enlarged left atrium, you have a propensity to atrial fibrillation, no, no matter what the etiology. And then we tried to eliminate low EF, renal failure. We have a, I would say it, it was very straightforward over age 70 patients for heart surgery requiring bypass, AVR, or combination of AVR cabbage. Okay. And can you talk to us about what your method was to manage the left atrial appendage before this study? Kind of walk us through when you chose to prophylactically amputate the left atrial appendage and why you felt that was important to include in the FDA trial as well. So again, very interesting. So we were doing it prophylactically without any um, real scientific data on, on patients uh, for redos, older patients, we would just amputate it and close it with a, a double layer of foroproline. And when I submitted the, the, the protocol in the study, we felt that amputating the appendage was the most sure way to eliminate it. Um, and the clip wasn't out at that time, the atrial clip, or uh, I know there's a new device coming from Medtronic, but there was no device to really clip. So the amputation was the most sure way to get rid of the left atrial appendage. And I felt this was very important as there is some literature, not 
All the cardiology literature agrees with that there might be a couple percentage of patients where the, the triggers arise from the left atrial appendage. But even so, that, that's not the main reason. I think the main reason is that if, you, if you're going to prophylactically treat atrial fibrillation, you need to get rid of the appendage because it, it will decrease the risk of stroke or thromboembolic events, period. Gotcha. And so in the study, you performed that amputation with the two-layer proline closure. Is, is that your preferred method now after the study as well? Or do you typically use an epicardial occlusion device like the atriclip? No, we, we typically, amputation is our preferred method. Um, and I was happy to see that in LAOS 3, that was actually the uh, preferred method for the bulk of those patients. But I mean, yeah, you get into cost. And I had a period in my life where I had to do LVADs. And when you go back to do the heart transplant or anything else, that, that was some of the worst adhesions I'd ever seen. Gotcha. So on that on that subject, um, can you talk to us about before we get into the study, just because you brought it up, I think it's important for, for the listeners to to have a deeper understanding of that. So when you're amputating the appendage in the setting of a cabbage, can you talk to us about your specific sequence within the operation? When do you amputate the appendage? And can you talk to us about um what sort of pearls you have with respect to let's say an om graft or a diagonal graft or something like that is like when because there are conversations about oh that can that can injure the graft or it can cause some you know perigraft inflammation possible stenosis you know there's all these kind of concerns that people have about managing the appendage in the setting of a cabbage can you can you shine some light on that for the listeners yeah, I, I think our, our preference at our institution, because um, prior to this study, we, we had to, anybody who was going to participate in it had to sit down and we had to come to some agreement. And what we found, what we thought was the safest was after cardiac arrest, after applying the cross clamp, utilizing cardioplegia, then we do our prophylactic pulmonary vein isolation. We start on the right side. Um, we can talk about the lesion set, but then when we roll the heart over to the right side and we typically open the pericardium, then we do our left-sided lesions. And immediately after that's completed, we amputate the appendage. We, we don't have the root vent on. It does introduce a little bit of air. Um, but it, it, the, the, the vision is very clear. You're looking right there. You, you take it off and do a double layer foral proline closure. One or two of my partners likes to use a pledge it. Um, and then go ahead and do your, your grafting. Afterwards, do your grafting, your AVR, what, whatever you need to do. Um, We've not had issues with left atrial appendage bleeding. It's going to happen sometime, but we just haven't had it. It's such a nice, secure closure. And by the time you're done, and let me use it a little cavalier, by the time you're done rolling the heart around to do your OM, your PDA, all the air is gone. You, you know, we're typically a distal proximal type of group, but um, 
Some people prefer two clamp technique. We don't do that, but air is not an issue. And we have not had issues with appendage bleeding with that technique. Gotcha. And would you typically outside of the trial setting, when you're doing pulmonary vein isolation with the clip in the prophylactic setting, would you typically create a Coumadin ridge line while that um, is open? Would you go left atrial appendage down to the left superior pulmonary vein to isolate the appendage electrically as well? Or are, are you omitting that lesion and just and just amputating the appendage? So for the FDA study, we omitted that lesion. Um, I didn't know what the efficacy of really that would be uh, in the prophylactic study. Now, in real life, when we do just PVI for paroxysmal, uh, we are doing that lesion. Okay. We're, we're using the clamp to, to do a, a double firing, uh, you know, two applications of energy with the bipolar <clears throat> device. Sure. And what about in, in the post-trial prophylactic setting? Are you now adding that lesion, that um, Coumadin Ridge lesion, or is are, are you not doing that in the prophylactic setting? So I have, in the prophylactic setting, I did not do that. Okay. Because, um, yeah, that you, I mean, you can, that's an other discussion when you're doing just a single intracardiac lesion what are you really doing to that Coumadin ridge? I mean, shouldn't you then just be completing the roof line vein to vein on the superior and then right. the, <laughs> yeah. you know that? So for prophylaxis, I, I had to be very careful because the FDA, I went back and forth for a year and safety was such a big concern. And as this was a feasibility trial, I was nervous every step of the way. It just I did not want to, you know, make a mistake of or have something that the surgeons who had joined me to do the study would have to think about another step. Right. No, that makes absolute sense. That makes absolute sense. So do you want to get into the to the study numbers with us? So you, we talked about kind of the methods. You These were patients that were 70 years or older. You talked about the exclusion criteria. Do you want to get into the results? Yeah, I'm happy to. The the uh, so we enrolled 62 patients, and they were all randomized to treatment or control, and they were either undergoing a cabbage, an AVR or a cabbage AVR. About 80% of them underwent a cabbage only. Two of them withdrew after consent. Um, just got nervous about the possible procedure, and and uh, we documented that. So we did 60 patients, and because it was randomized, we ended up with 31 controls and 29 treatment patients. And um, a very homogeneous group of patients. Basically, we left the risk factor as age. And as I alluded to a little earlier, we, we, we excluded, we had to exclude a lot of people, just uh, multiple reasons, renal failure, Left atrial enlarge, or left atrial enlargement, um, previous ablate, you know, previous history of AFib. There could be no history of dysrhythmias either in the electronic medical record or from the patient themselves. Um, so, 
it, it, I thought we would accrue a lot quicker and we didn't. But what we did was we set the rule very stringent. We, we went by the Heart Rhythm Society definition of any episode of atrial fibrillation over 30 seconds. And it was our primary outcome was inpatient atrial fibrillation. In the control group of, of the 31 patients, 17 developed post-op AFA flutter, 54%. In the treatment group, only two patients developed atrial fibrillation. Now, kind of funny, two patients also developed atrial flutter, but it was very self-limiting. It was under 15 minutes and didn't require treatment. So only about a 7% rate in the prophylactic group. This is at 30 days. If, so we went out a year per FDA requirements. I did not do zeal patches, halters. I just, we had no funding for that. Um, but by quarterly phone calls with the patients, all 60 of them, as well as searching the EMR, at the end of 12 months, the treatment group, none of, they were all in, in sinus rhythm. Even the two that had to be discharged because of some in-house episodes of AF, um, atrial fibrillation, I should be specific. In the control arm, six patients were still battling a year, well, three patients were still battling active atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter at a year out. 10%. Yeah, about 10%. One had undergone, well, there was, well, I can talk about the medications, the anticoagulations separate. Sure. I'm sure. jumping a little ahead on your question, but. Sure. Now, um, before we move forward with that, can you talk to us about how did you monitor for the 30 seconds of HRS to find AFib, afluttery attack in the hospital? Was that based on telemetry? Did you have other specific monitoring techniques? No, they were on 24-hour telemetry, and any episode of atrial fibrillation got reported to us. And if... Any dysrhythmia, I would take the EKG and or the telemetry strip. I didn't have EKGs on all these patients, and I would show it to the electrophysiologist. Um, the, the, even with the um, uh, in the treatment arm, it, there was some argument amongst the electrophysiologists. They would take it to a friend and say, "Is this just atrial tachycardia?" or is this truly atrial fibrillation? So we tried to just err on the side of an atrial dysrhythmia. Sure, sure, that makes sense. You know, it's really interesting what caught my ears, you said that the two episodes in the treatment arm that failed, let's say, or who, or who had AF, ATAC, a flutter, the two out of the 29, that 7%, they were self-remitting episodes of about 15 minutes, which is really interesting because if you look at the STS definition of one hour or not requiring an intervention, they actually wouldn't have been counted as an STS post-op AFib. But because you were being so stringent with the HRS definition, you actually picked up on those two patients. Really well, interesting. I, I'm going to interrupt you. It was the, the two that were very self-limiting was the atrial flutter. Okay. So it's, it's, 
just kind of irony that those ones who yeah, I didn't really have a flutter in the control arms. It was all atrial fibrillation. So it, yeah, it makes you wonder. We need to do a little more, but I'll leave that alone. But it, even, the, <laughs> even the failures, the failures in the treatment arm, one was self-limiting after about six hours. One, one patient had to go home. Um, she had over 24 hours, 82-year-old patient. Um, she had to go home on uh, antiarrhythmics and anticoagulation. Okay. Do you mind do you mind speaking to us about that? So what what was your standard protocol for treatment in your new onset post-op AFib after a cabbage? What is what is the Grand Rapids kind of protocol for that? <laughs> so um any atrial any atrial fibrillation that's symptomatic, we we treat immediately with amiodarone plus minus diltiazem plus minus additional beta blockers, as all these patients were on perioperative beta blockers. Um, if, if they were not symptomatic, we, we wait 24 hours. We say if they're in atrial fibrillation after 24 hours, we treat them. Or if they have two or more episodes, even if it's a short episode, five minutes and five minutes, then we treat them with amiodarone plus minus calcium channel blocker, or beta blocker, and they get anticoagulated. If if it's over 24 hours of AFib or two or more episodes in 24 hours. Okay. And how often do you think you were you needed to cardiovert these patients? Did you have any cardioversions, or do you typically cardiovert uh, patients who have post-op AFib? So the if 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 the atrial fibrillation is symptomatic and it's right away in 24 hours, we will try to get them cardioverted. The cardiologists are pretty strict about that. They usually, if they've had a, one or two episodes and it drags out over anything over 24 hours, they won't do it. They want anticoagulation for six weeks and then maybe a T cardioversion. So we don't use inpatient cardioversion hardly at all unless it's like i said somebody symptomatic quite quickly or a young patient that's already being anticoagulated if i do an mvr on somebody they develop it on post-op day three they've had a mitral valve replacement and they're on coumadin they'll anticoagulate them before they go home if they've been anticoagulated Sure, sure. And as far as your your routine um, oral anticoagulant in the setting of post-op AFib, is that typically a DOAC or is it is it Coumadin? What 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 do you guys use? <laughs> Great question. So, ten surgeons <laughs> turning out about turning out about sixteen hundred pumps a year. We cannot agree with this. So, I'm a fan of DOACs. Um, several of my partners are, several others prefer Coumadin. Now, I will say that we've we've started to pull back off anticoagulation if, if patients have had their appendage removed or uh, clipped, because we in the past year from the DOACs have had four or five people come back into the hospital with tamponade. 
So I'm a little more reticent now if they've had the appendage removed or clipped. I try to convince the cardiologist to wait at least two weeks. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Okay. Yeah. So let's get back into the study. So um, again, just to recap for the listener, I mean, these were remarkable results. So randomized control study, PBI plus left atrial amputation versus none of those treatments in these patients. And it was a 55% incidence in the non-treatment arm, 7% incidence in the treatment arm, highly significant. I mean, your p-value is less than 0.001. Um, and then moving forward, not just the presence of atrial dysrhythmias, as you say, but let's talk about antiarrhythmic medications at discharge, because that I think is is almost as big of a deal, right? Like there's this psychological almost um, component of post-op AFib, right? You've done this beautiful cabbage. You've done this beautiful AVR. Your patient's cruising along. Then post-op day two, post-op day three, you have to walk into the room and say, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, I'm so sorry. Um, you developed AFib. It's common after surgery, 30 to 40% of patients get it. We can treat it effectively with amiodarone, but you're probably going to have to stay in the hospital an extra day or two. You're probably going to have to go home on amiodarone for exactly. 30 days or so. So that's a, it's a big deal yes. to keep people from taking antiarrhythmics post-op. So can you talk about those results with us? Yeah. So I I think that was a, one of our secondary outcomes that we, we put in our protocol, and it was quite impressive. I, I, I apologize, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I believe 45% of the, those patients in the control arm went home on an antiarrhythmic. Yep, you nailed it. Yep, I'm looking at your abstract right now, 45%. Oh, for, <laughs> and, and actually... Um, I'll interject here. Our paper got accepted too. So I'm hoping oh, to congratulations. Yeah, it should be pretty quick here in JTCVS. So oh, that's awesome. I could, Can't yeah, wait. I'm pretty excited. But I, I, in, in the in the treatment arm, only only one patient went home on a on an antiarrhythmic. And I think that in itself is is a is a major um finding. Just as you say, it, it adds an additional medication. Um, there's a cost factor. It, it, amiodarone is our most popular one. It complicates um, Coumadin dosing. It complicates um, just something as simple as thyroid medication. So it, it is a big thing that you can get patients out of the hospital without additional medications like that. And, and that is, you know, I think especially the one-year results to me were, were even surprising. Um, yeah, that, absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, a 10% persistent AFib rate in the non-treatment arm is significant, especially if you think about on scale with the number of cabbages that are performed every year. Let's just talk about cabbages, let alone ABR. And just for the math, let's say we do 200,000 cabbages a year in the U.S., you know, 40% of them develop post-op, or let's say, let's, let's be nice. 30% of them develop post-op AFib and 10% of those develop persistent AFib. So you're talking about 2000 patients a year who have persistent AFib one year out from their cabbage. That is not an insignificant number. 
Correct. I totally agree with you. And I think the literature does too. I mean, it's, there's, depending who you pick up, it's, you know, the five to 15% have persistent post-op AF. Yeah. So now you have these results in hand, you have an accepted manuscript. Congratulations. You've made your way through an FDA trial. Congratulations. So what does your practice now look like with respect to prophylactic ablation in your isolated cabbage or AVR cabbage or isolated AVR? Well, (laughs) so I have to stress that this is still what was under a feasibility trial. So the device was not approved for prophylactic use. Um, you know, I, I, our practice has a very low threshold to, to do uh, an, a surgical ablation in patients, you know, with atrial, for any history. We, we try not to go back to two decades ago when we would ignore it and say, so the practice overall has become much more alert to atrial dyspneas and how we can manage this, but we still can't utilize it as a as a prophylactic. And I wish we could because our incidents, you know, we're, we're hot. We have a huge volume of I, you know, cab. We're a big cabbage center. Let me say that about six hundred a year plus six seven hundred, and it, it is still a daily, a daily problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, we cannot utilize this prophylactically. It's not approved for that. CMS won't pay for it. Um, Understood. Understood. Well, what I can tell you is we were very encouraged by what we were hearing through the grapevine about your study in so much that we started our own study kind of based on the rumors that that we had heard from your institution. And our studies are a little bit different. We kind of texted back and forth about that a little bit. Really the, yep. the difference between, so for the listeners at St. Helena, what we did is we, um, on the kind of the backing of Dr. Willickus's uh, results or kind of presumed results, if you will, we started also providing a prophylactic ablation um, but again, within those same parameters, right? We said, you know, we talked to the patients, we provided it in their risk benefit alternative conversation with their surgical consent. And we, we basically spoke to the fact that there is now more evidence that, you know, there are intraoperative procedures, whether it was your procedure or even the procedure from the palace group where they were doing the left pericardotomy, which basically conceptually maybe falls parallel in that you're trying to reduce the triggers, the post-operative triggers, whether it's from inflammation, fluid, you know, pulmonary sleeves. Um, And so we said, okay, if we were to ablate beyond the pulmonary veins, let's say we were to form a left atrial box and try to isolate the posterior wall, would that have some sort of additive effect? And, you know, we specifically wanted to use the encompass clamp um, from Atricure, just because it would be, again, like your study, a non-atriotomy study, and maybe it allowed for a little bit more substrate modification with the posterior wall, and maybe that would lead to a similar decrease in the rate of uh, post-op AFib. And 
To make a long story short, we found very similar findings in a retrospective fashion. I think it's really important for people to, to know that we're talking absolutely different scales of trial design. You had a randomized feasibility trial where you simply provided a an operation with the surgical consent and then reviewed it retrospectively. But on scale, we found a very similar finding. We had about a 50% historic post-op AFib rate that we were able to reduce down to 5%. So tenfold difference, um, very similar findings as far as uh, antiarrhythmic use, very similar as far as oral anticoagulation. And then like um, your study, we followed them out for 30 days. And then we followed them out to point for six months. We only had out of the 75 patients we retrospectively reviewed, only 32 were eligible for a six-month ZO and 21 of them completed them. But like you said, 0% of patients had AFib, flutter, ATAC on an average seven-day ZO. So it seems that whatever we provided intraoperatively had some sustainability to it. Um, I can't speak to our institutional kind of persistent AFib rate uh, in a in a historical reference. I think it's probably on par with kind of what we've been talking about, probably somewhere in that 10% rate. So we found very similar findings. We are uh, going through the manuscript process uh, as we all are very well versed in. Um, but it is it is exciting. I think there are more data that are going to speak to, you know, when given the opportunity to do something for a patient to prevent post-op AFib in the operating room, whether it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and maybe you can speak to that, how long kind of this the uh the treatment protocol took. Um, but we can make a real difference, a very high impact difference in about 10, 15 minutes as opposed to this kind of litany of medications post-op and all their related issues. Yep. And I think you make very good points. And what's exciting when you, when you dig into this, as far as I could research a number of years ago, I, I, I was very excited to hear that your group was able to do this and add the, the superior and inferior or the roof and floor respectively people refer to because that came out a little bit at the stars meeting in Boston in 20 just last December that, that for, for, for a paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, a lot of people are starting to feel it's better to be able to isolate the entire posterior left atrium. So that's why I'm really excited about your procedure, but I'll, I'll back up a little bit in the Canadian study by Kai, he, he used the cardioblate and he only did a single lesion. And he tested, he, he tested with uh, entrance and exit block. But the, the Russian study from Lednov, he did a three lesion set, just like we proposed. So that was very interesting, the little bit of difference. So what he's doing with the three lesion set is he is actually creating a band of isolation versus, let me say, a single lesion set. So we do three adjacent lesion sets. So we may be knocking out more triggers. We're actually encroaching onto the as we work proximally onto the body of the left atrium, especially posterior. So that may be one reason why our study 
was as good as the Russian study, which we were even a little bit better than the Russian study. But that's maybe why when you look at the one study by Kai, that his didn't, he, he just did a single lesion set. Maybe we're taking out more triggers. I don't know. Um, we now know we don't have to do three applications of energy. I mean, that was actually proved already way back in 2002 by Gilanoff and McCarthy with the um, with the uh, Atricure or the radio their radio frequency bipolar clamp. And again, that was reaffirmed reaffirmed by Damiano recently at the Stars meeting. Again, that we don't need to do three applications, just two. But we were pretty aggressive that way in in getting a big band. Sure. And so is, is, is your current clamping technique doing a pair of two ablations, the Damiano kind of doublet, if you will, where you go through the algorithm twice for each ablation and you do that twice, or is it, is it different from that? So we do three separate lesions on the cuff of left atrium bilaterally. And we do three applications of energy. That's how the, the protocol was set up. So I was kind of old school. I always did three. Now Damiano's newer data shows you, you don't have to do that. But, you know, with the, the sensing device, the, the unit provided from Atricure, and I'm not trying to sound biased, but that, that is, you know, based on the time. We'd like to see it drop for sure under 10 seconds, if not right down under five seconds. Gotcha. Um, and sorry, so it, go ahead. Sorry. Sometimes I shouldn't, I shouldn't say I just limit to three. If I don't see that sensing unit go down under 10 seconds, I'll do four applications. I'll do five if I need to. Okay. And are you releasing the clamp between those applications or is that keeping the clamp closed and then going through it three times or four times or five mm -hmm. times? I'm keeping it closed. Okay. Okay. I only gotcha. move it when I go to the next lesion set. Okay. So you're doing three lesions, applying the inner, or for the trial, I should say, you applied three lesions, each with energy three times um, to each set of pulmonary veins. Correct. Okay. So, and, and how, how long was that taking, do you think, approximately, to do, to do the, the whole treatment lesion set? Uh, just, it, it, it it's going to add somewhere 10 to, 10 to 15 minutes. Um, not always is it so easy to get safely around the right pulmonary veins and dissect out the interatrial groove. Um, some patients that goes fairly quickly, other patients, it's a bit of a, it's a challenge because it has to be safe. You, you know, you don't want to perforate the back of that left atrium, the left side's always easier. So then amputating the appendage, that's a little bit, everybody sews at a little different rate, but it, it's going to add 10 to 15 minutes across clamp time. Right. Right. Interesting. And that, you know, when you compare that to the non-atriotomy posterior wall isolation with the encompass clamp, 
Um, we were fortunate enough to do them without the cross clamp. I know some centers are using a cross clamp to you to do that posterior wall isolation. So there might even be some opportunity to not increase your cross clamp time, but simply increase your pump time. If, if, uh, if we're able to use the device like the encompass clamp in this setting too. So we'll just, we'll have to see kind of what, what comes of that moving forward. So all very exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting. I'm going to ask you, you know, so before the Encompass came out and we thought we weren't, I'm going to throw this out there. There were there was surgeons doing the pulmonary vein isolation with radio frequency and then using a cryoprobe to complete the roof and floor from the epicardial. Has right. that been, is there any efficacy? I've not. I've seen some some surgeons doing that, so that that they say they're doing the box lesion. Right. No, I've 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 heard the same thing. I think we're both thinking of the same surgeon. Um, my <laughs> sense is it's uh, at this point. I don't know if there's anything in in, in printed data for, in a manuscript, for example. I think at this point. Um, that surgeon, what they're doing is, like you said, they're doing bilateral PBI where it's with an RF clamp, and then they're taking the cryoprobe and they're they're applying it across the roof and the floor, like you said. And my understanding is, while they are on pump, not arrested, they perform this lesion set and then they check for entrance block in the posterior wall. If they don't have entrance block, then they arrest and repeat the roof and the floor with the cryo trying to mitigate that kind of heat sink effect of the blood in the left atrium that may yeah. have prevented from a nice transmural lesion while on pump, but not arrested. So again, I, you know, I don't know of any data per se. I know that there are surgeons who are doing that one in particular, um, but I, I can't speak to the results of that technique. It is very intriguing because it does allow for another non-atriotomy option to isolate the posterior wall, but don't know the data. Yeah. 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 I mean, we're in the middle of that convergent, you know, we're, we're about to publish our convergent data too on 170 or 180 patients. And, but that's a different energy application again, totally different. So it is. And, you know, what's, what's interesting about the convergent um, data in kind of its, its predecessor, if you will, the, the Cobra fusion they're both, you know, vacuum assisted devices. And I think there is something to be said for the ability to stabilize the energy on the tissue. So obviously the, the clamp kind of foregoes all that because it's a clamped structure. It's not moving anywhere. So you can get some really nice um, lesions with the devices that are applied to a beating heart that don't have vacuum assist. I think it's, it's a little bit up in the air still, you know, I can speak to our um, totally thoracoscopic data where, where we applied the MLP device, which is that unipolar kind of three centimeter length device that you place yeah. on the, the roof and the floor. Our box completion rate uh, with that technique was probably somewhere in the 65 to 70% range. So I think with the convergent, you see more consistent transmural lesions because it is vacuum assisted. Now, whether you know it plays out in total with a hybrid ablation, because those spots are, are they, they're in, they get, and they end up getting dealt with at the endocardial stage anyways, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll see, but, um, you know, it, 
all of these approaches, I think, are really interesting when you try to think about how do you stabilize beating heart tissue with an ablation device. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, again, congratulations. I mean, I was I was definitely on tiptoes, kind of waiting for this data to come out. Um, so excited about it. Excited to to read your manuscript. And I just, I can't imagine the amount of work that went into, uh, you know, completing this trial and then the manuscript. And so I'm going to leave the last few minutes to you. The floor is yours. Whatever you would like to speak to, please feel free. And uh, Dr. Willekes, thank you so much for for coming on the program today. Yeah, no, I I was pretty excited about, I, I didn't know about this podcast site so i think that this has to really i want to get my fellows to look at it because where you have interviews with some of the leaders in this field and this is this is as critical to me dealing with atrial fibrillation when we have a chance to take care of these patients surgically there's no better time to do an ablation or to help them and uh you know, I had alluded to this a little bit. I I started seeing patients who were suffering all the ill effects, and it took me a while to put two and two together. And I know I, I know my older generation of surgeons are extremely, you know, any uh, and I'm about to be sixty here, but we just never embraced this. We didn't learn it, and now, you know, a couple decades later, I I think this is really important and uh i uh like i said i'm just new to this this podcast and i'm pretty excited about it and gonna broadcast it and i want the younger generation especially the fellows coming up in our program and across the country i want want to get this out there so i i appreciate this great well thank you so much thank you for the kind words absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast and can't wait to wait, can't wait to get this through post-production and out. So Dr. Willickis, thank you so much again for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcast and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.